0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 14 to 21. In the first three chapters of his letter, the Apostle Paul presents us with the grand sweep of God's purposes from eternity past to eternity future the remaining chapters are more obviously practical in import. So today's passage marks the end of the more theological section of the letter. Let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 3 at verse 14. You'll find it on page 977 of the church Bibles. (coughs) in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, And our Redeemer. Amen. What gift can you give the man or woman who has everything? What gift can you give the man or woman who has everything? Around this time of year, you begin to see articles in magazines and newspaper supplements which pose that question. With Christmas coming up, what gift do you give the man or woman who who seems to have everything, who seems to need nothing? And these articles, not altogether seriously, often suggest quirky and unusual gifts that you wouldn't otherwise have thought of. I think this morning's passage answers a similar question. For the Christian who has everything, what do you pray for? For the Christian who has everything, what do you pray for? What do I mean by that? Well, earlier in his letter, the Apostle Paul has described Christians as having been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he has listed the blessings Christians have received. Let me remind you of some of them. We were chosen in eternity past to be holy and blameless in God's sight. We were predestined for adoption into God's family. Through Christ's death on the cross, we have been rescued from slavery to sin, and we have received full and free forgiveness. We've obtained a glorious inheritance. We've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We belong to a worldwide family that knows no distinctions of race, gender, class, or background. We are part of the new humanity God is creating. These are amazing blessings if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus, if by faith we're united to him, then all these blessings are ours. No wonder, Paul says, we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So my question is, what more could we possibly need? What more can we possibly pray for? It's in the context of all these blessings that Paul introduces the prayer which forms this morning's passage. That's why I suggest this passage passage shows us what, as Christians, we should pray for, both for ourselves and for others. Most of this chapter, chapter 3 in the letter, is an extended parenthesis, you'll see that the chapter begins with the words, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. But that's as far as Paul gets before breaking off his train of thought and launching into an explanation of his role as an apostle to the Gentiles. It's only in verse 14 that he picks up again on what he was about to say earlier. You see how he repeats the words, for this reason. In this connection, it's worth noting that the Bible is both human and divine. As Christians, we believe that the writers of Scripture wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were born along by the Holy Spirit. They wrote what God wanted them to write, But that didn't mean that the Holy Spirit overrode their personalities or their personal idiosyncrasies. You see, the doctrine of inspiration allows for interrupted thought, as here. It even allows for messy syntax. So why does Paul fall on his knees before God the Father and pray? What is the reason for his prayer? I think it's because of all that God has revealed and of of himself and of his purposes that Paul bows before the Father and prays. He has shared with the Ephesians all that God has done from eternity past, all that he proposes to do right up into eternity future. And in the light of all these things, Paul now feels constrained to pray. He's praying in the light of all the blessings God has showered on an undeserving world. So what can we learn from Paul's prayer? The first thing I'd like to highlight is the challenge that's implied. The challenge that's implied. Let me explain One of the things Paul prays for is for the Holy Spirit to strengthen the Ephesian Christians with power in their inner being and for Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith. But the Spirit is already at work in them. Christ already indwells the Ephesian Christians. Otherwise, they wouldn't be Christians at all. The implication, then, is that the Ephesians need to experience Christ's fellowship and the Spirit's power in greater measure. Paul also prays that they may know the love of Christ. As Christians, they already know it. Again, the implication is that there's more to be known and experienced. There's room for progress That's the challenge. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Christians have, in Christ, received entitlement to every spiritual blessing. But we don't yet fully enjoy every blessing. We are holy and blameless in God's sight in terms of our status. That's how God sees us but we're not yet holy and blameless in practice. We're no longer slaves to sin, but the fact is we still sin. We have received forgiveness, and yet we still need daily forgiveness for daily sins. We are heirs to a glorious inheritance, but so far all we have received is the down payment As as regards the blessings which are ours in Christ, we need to distinguish between the now and the not yet. We enjoy the blessings in a measure now, but we don't yet enjoy them fully. And yet, we can and should enjoy them more and more, even here and now. That's the implication of Paul's prayer. Progress is possible. The Christian life isn't static, it's dynamic. There's more to be enjoyed, there's more to be experienced. You see, there's more to being a Christian than simply becoming a Christian. We don't become Christians and sit back and fold our arms because we have it all. There's a life to be lived, there's a race to be run, there's a fight to be fought. We may not be sinless, but we should sin less. The Christian life is sometimes described as becoming what we are. I rather like that. If we're Christians, we are holy as regards our status before God. That's what we are. The challenge is, is to become what we are, to become more holy in practice. If we're Christians, we are members of God's family. We are his adopted sons and daughters. That's what we are. The challenge is to become more like sons and daughters of the living God in how we behave. We need to become what we are. Sometimes I think there's a real risk we forget that the Christian life means lifelong obedience to Christ. As someone has said, it's a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life can't be reduced to an initial response to a gospel invitation. It can't be reduced to a decision that I made months, perhaps years ago, it can't be reduced to an experience i had when i was 14 the christian life is as much about how we are living now the apostle paul dramatically came to faith when he encountered the ascended lord jesus christ on the road from jerusalem to damascus and yet he wrote to the galatian christians the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Elsewhere, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't live in the past Paul didn't spend his life looking back to his experience on the Damascus Road. That was important, of course it was. But Paul wanted to make progress in his Christian life. And his ambition for the Ephesian Christians was the same. He wanted them to grow in their faith, to grow in practical holiness, to become what they were. That's the challenge which is implied in his prayer. And that's the same challenge which comes to us if we claim to be Christians today. Are you, am I, becoming what we are? Are we growing as Christians? Are we making progress? Or are we putting little or no effort into our Christian lives and slipping back? If that's the case, then we need to ask ourselves very seriously if we're Christians at all. The Christian life is not static. That's the implied challenge of Paul's prayer. Having looked at that, let's look secondly at the requests which Paul makes. The requests which Paul makes. There are basically three requests, and it's as if they uh, work towards a climax The first request is in verse 16. Paul writes that according to the riches of his glory, the Father may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I think we should treat this as one request since it's by the Holy Spirit that Christ dwells in our hearts. Paul wants the Holy Spirit to empower the Ephesians and make them strong. You might expect that this would manifest itself in dramatic ways, but what Paul has in mind here is primarily inward. He wants them to be strengthened in their inner being. He wants Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith. I wonder if you've noticed how the innocuous question, where do you stay, Can have different connotations north and south of the border. In Scotland, the question is often used to ascertain where a person's home is. But in England, the question, where do you stay, usually implies short term residence. You stay in a hotel or guest house if you're on holiday or away on business. If you want to know where someone's home is, you ask, where do you live? that there's something similar in Greek. The word which is here translated dwell denotes permanent occupation. Christ already indwells the Ephesian Christians, but Paul wants him to enjoy all the benefits of permanent occupation. He wants him to feel more and more at home in the hearts of the Ephesian believers. How does that come about? It comes about through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through his Spirit Christ lives in us. It's the Spirit who makes Jesus real to us. At the same time, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, and faith is something we have to exercise. But faith isn't something we do in our own strength. We don't screw our eyes up and try desperately hard to have more faith. There are things we can do to nurture our faith. We need to read our Bibles. We need to meditate in God's Word. We need to pray. We need to meet regularly with our fellow Christians. As we do these things, the Holy Spirit grows our faith. As we cooperate with him, he enables us to lean more and more on Jesus and live in dependence on him. A minister I used to have would say, no one has less of God than he or she really wants. No one has less of God than he or she really wants. The more I've thought about that, the more convinced I am it's true. But ultimately, we need the Holy Spirit to pour His grace and power into our hearts. That's why we need to pray that God would grant us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit— in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. Paul's second request for the Ephesians is in verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge. Paul wants the lives of the Ephesian Christians to be characterized by love. He mixes his metaphors. When he speaks of the Ephesians as being rooted in love, he's thinking of them as plants which have their roots going deep down into the soil. Then he speaks of them as grounded in love. This is an architectural metaphor. He's thinking of love as the foundation on which they build their lives. Each metaphor presents love as indispensable. Paul sees love, love for God and love for others, as basic to the Christian life. Elsewhere he speaks of faith working by love, faith expressing itself by love. Faith is the natural outworking of a life of faith. In effect, that's what practical godliness looks like. And it's only as we live like that, as we live a life of love, that we can truly appreciate Christ's love for us. I suppose This is something that's true of any relationship in principle. Now, I know that relationships in this fallen world don't always work out the way they they should. But in any relationship, in principle, the more we give of ourselves, the more we are likely to receive in return. And that's how it works in the Christian life. The more we love, love others and love God, the more we will appreciate Christ's love in return. Paul wants us to know Christ's love more and more. What he has in mind isn't simply intellectual comprehension. It's experiential knowledge. It's heart knowledge. When Paul speaks about the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love, He's trying to get across just how vast it is. I don't think we should read too much into these various terms, but we could do worse than remind ourselves of the old children's chorus that picks up on Paul's words. It is actions that try to explain the words. Jesus' love is very wonderful. Jesus' love is very wonderful. So high, you can't get over it. So low, you can't get under it. So wide, you can't encompass it. Oh, what wonderful love. The love of Christ is wonderful. It embraces the very worst of sinners and assures him or her that they can be transformed into a saint-fit for glory, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Paul says something very striking in verse 19. He describes Christ's love as surpassing knowledge. He wants the Ephesians to know Christ's love... And yet he says that it can't be known. I think what he's saying is that the love of Christ can never be known fully. There will never be a time, even in eternity, when God's people will have grasped it completely. Even in glory, there will be more to know. The experience of God's people will not be static And note too how in verse 18, it is with all the saints that Christ's love is known. We need one another to explore and exult in Christ's love. Knowing it, comprehending it, is a corporate activity. It's not something we do effectively in isolation. That's the second request. The final request is in verse 19 that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the climax of the prayer. Paul wants the Ephesians to be transformed into God's image. As they live in dependence on Christ by the power of the Spirit, as they grasp his love with ever-increasing clarity, Paul expects them to be transformed into his likeness. Paul wants them to be filled with all the fullness of God. He's not asking for the Ephesians to become God. That's not the prospect which the Christian gospel holds out. But they can become like him. The Apostle John writes, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him. As he is. That's, uh, but, and even now it's possible to become more and more like him. That's why John goes on to say everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We can be transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Can I ask you, is that true of you today? Is that true of me? Three requests for the Spirit's strengthening and Christ's indwelling, to know Christ's love, and to be filled with all the fullness of God. These are big requests. They're big but are they impossible? What confidence could the Ephesians have that Paul's prayer would be answered? And what grounds do we have for making the same requests for ourselves? Let's consider then thirdly, the provision which is available, the provision which is assured. Look first at what Paul says in verse 16. He prays that the Father would strengthen the Ephesians with power through the Spirit and their inner being according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. That's the measure Paul has in mind as he prays. He's addressing a God whose glory is infinite and whose riches are limitless. Can that God do what Paul asks? Of course he can. And look with me at how Paul describes the Lord in verse 20. He speaks of him as the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. If the Ephesians are tempted to think Paul is asking for too much, He reminds them just how great their God is. He can do all they ask him to do. But actually he can do more. Not only can he do all that they ask him to do, he can do all that they could possibly dream of asking him to do. And it doesn't end even there. He can do far more abundantly than all they ask or think. Paul uses here a sort of super superlative to make his point. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is impossible for God. And you know, the Ephesians already have evidence of what God's power can do. It's, that power is already at work in them. They've already been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. They're already indwelled by the Holy Spirit. They already have new God-given capacities and interests. God has already begun a good work in them and he will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is still the same. The God who is able to answer Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is equally able to answer our prayers. There's no inability in Him. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to His power at work within us. That's the provision which is available, the provision that's assured. Finally and briefly, the goal envisaged. Paul concludes his prayer for the Ephesians with what we call a doxology, an ascription of praise to God. To him, he says in verse 20, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This doxology is a fitting conclusion to the first part of the letter in which Paul has set out the grand sweep of God's plan. It's also a fitting conclusion to Paul's prayer because the ultimate goal of Paul's prayer goes beyond the good of the Ephesian Christians, important though that is. The goal of his prayer is nothing less than the glory of God. I say that because that is consistently reflected in what Paul has been saying. In chapter 1 of his letter, he says that Christians have been predestined to be adopted as sons to the praise of his glorious grace. He also says that Christians have been saved so that we might be to the praise of his glory. If you are a Christian today, you have been saved ultimately for the praise of God's glory. In chapter 2, Paul describes believers as being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And here in chapter 3 in verse 10, Paul says that God's plan is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, the church is God's master plan. It reflects His wisdom, the wisdom of God, to our watching universe. It exists to give Him glory. Being a Christian brings us many blessings, but the ultimate goal of our salvation is to give God glory. Man's chief end is to glorify God. That's the goal that's envisaged. So for the Christian who's been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ... What do you pray for? You pray that they would recognize the challenge of becoming what they are. You pray that the Spirit would strengthen them in their inner being and that Christ would make himself more and more at home in their hearts. You pray that they would live a life of love and grasp more and more of Christ's love for them. You pray that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what you pray for. But how do you pray? You pray with confidence. Because God has limitless resources. He is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. And why do you pray? You pray for their good, obviously. But ultimately that God would be glorified in them and in his church. That's what we need to pray for, for ourselves and for our fellow Christians. And if you're not a Christian, you need to ask the Lord to grant you faith, to help you see who Jesus is and what he has done, to enable you to set out on the adventure, which is the Christian life. You were created to give glory to God. You can only begin to do so as you accept the salvation which he offers in his Son. Shall we pray? O Lord, after considering a passage like this, what can we do but to pray in the terms which it brings before us? And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to respond to the challenge of the Christian life. Help us to see that there is progress to be made, that there is more to be enjoyed, more to be experienced. We ask that you would strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner beings, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, we pray that you would make us more like the Lord Jesus and that you would help us to appreciate his love more and more. May we live to your glory and may we depend on you knowing that you are able to do in us and for us more than we can ask or even imagine. We ask it for your glory. Amen.